0: Well, good morning. Glad you all are here this morning. Glad to be here. Um, It was a good week. This week, uh, for me, I had the opportunity to go to a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and uh, just thank you to uh, the elders for letting me do that. It was a refreshing time. It was really helpful. I was able to see some old friends and uh, make some good connections, so um, you know, it's uh, sort of a rejuvenating time to get to do that for me. And uh, so thank you all for, for allowing me to do that and give me that opportunity. Um, it was good. It, it was needed. So uh, open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 3 this morning. Titus 3 is where we're going to be. And as you're opening up there, I'm sure you can look back on your life and remember some some profound lessons that you have learned along the way things you could summarize in a pithy statement that maybe your parents taught you or whatever. One of those lessons for me was learned the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year in school. It wasn't a major life event. Uh, It was my interest in playing basketball that led to this particular lesson that I learned uh, I'd always played basketball. Uh, my dad was the varsity basketball coach at the school that I went to, he's the athletic director, and so I was always around sports. We watched sports, and so I had a basketball in my hand often uh, when I was a young child. But in eighth grade, I hit a growth spurt, and I'd played ball, and then I grew a lot in between eighth and ninth grade, or in eighth grade, and so um, I'm sort of gangly at that point, still am to some extent, and so when you grow a lot, when you're playing a sport, sometimes you have to adjust how you play that particular sport. And that's what happened to me. I, my, my form on my shot needed to be altered quite a bit because I'd grown so much. And so uh, I'll never forget working with my dad. And that summer, we uh, went to a basketball camp, watched some really good players play. Uh, we read articles. Uh, we investigated proper shooting technique. When it comes to basketball, because if I'm going to adjust how I play the game and how I shoot, I want to learn to do it correctly. And so my dad helped me with that. We talked to other coaches, all of that. And uh, we we did what we needed to do with the fundamentals of shooting technique. And I learned how to shoot properly. And then the real work started um, and this is the lesson that I learned. In all of that, learning the te- proper technique, watching other players, lo- talking to other coaches, all of that was important. But that is groundwork for what now had to take place. Now what I had to do was get into the gym, and I had to shoot hundreds and thousands of shots using that new technique. And I had to do it over and over again. And the lesson that I learned through that and that my dad taught me was practice makes permanent doesn't make perfect, but it makes permanent. You have to do something over and over again for it to be permanent. You have to train your muscles to shoot that basketball the same way so that when you're in the game, they react automatically. It's muscle memory. And so my dad would tell me that as I would go to the gym and I would shoot. He would say, practice makes permanent. You have to do this over and over again in the right way in practice So that when you get into the game, you won't even have to think about it anymore. You'll just do it. And that was an important lesson for me. Because I had to learn that in sports. But also, you have to learn that in life. That you have to do something over and over again. Practice makes permanent. And so I needed to be reminded of that often when I would go shoot. It's hard sometimes when you're going to the gym. You don't really feel like it. But you need to be reminded. The practice that you're doing now is preparing you to play properly in the game. And as I've been studying this book of Titus and preaching and teaching it to you, I feel like in some ways like my dad is sitting on my shoulder telling me the same thing over and over again because Paul keeps stressing the same principles to Titus here. He wants Titus to insist to the people on the island of Crete that they need to do the same thing over and over again. They have to let the gospel impact the way that they live life. The gospel and God's grace will translate into good works. And he keeps telling them that. He's reminding them of that. Your doctrine must not remain an intellectual exercise. It would not have been enough if I just would have read in the books how to shoot the basketball properly. If I just would have watched other people shoot the basketball properly, that would not have been enough. I had to go to the gym, and I had to practice, and I had to prepare for the games. And that's what Paul is telling Titus here. You have got to let the knowledge that you have translate into good works. And he insists on that over and over again. So our passage today is going to, again, make that same point in a slightly different way. Titus chapter 3, and look at verse 1. Remind them, he says... As if he hasn't said this enough, he wants them to hear it again. Remind them, and then we'll walk through the rest of the passage, but it's the same general principle here of connecting orthodoxy, right belief, to orthopraxy, right practice. Those two go hand in hand. This time, however, it's not so much focused internally on his own character, on the the character of the people in the church, as it is letting that character turn outward and impact the world that they're living in. They need to live the right way before a watching world. Look back in chapter two. He's kind of prepared the groundwork for turning outward to a watching world. Look back at verse five of chapter two. At the end of that verse, he says that the word of God may not be reviled by unbelievers. They need to live with that which is fitting for sound doctrine so that unbelievers won't revile the word of God. Look down at verse eight. Verse eight in sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And look down at verse 10. But showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, the way you live will impact the reception of the gospel by others, and how they view the gospel. And he's going to flesh that out in some detail in the passage that we're going to walk through today. So here in chapter 3, he expands on that idea, and he gives us the theology behind it. Theology, orthodoxy, and orthopraxy go hand in hand. And today we're going to see three reminders for us to live out the gospel in our culture, specifically living it out before unbelievers. So three reminders to live out the gospel in our culture. And the first one of these, appropriately enough, is that our faith has social responsibilities. Our faith has social responsibilities. As we look at these first couple of verses, there's, I want you to, to think in terms of tensions within the Bible. Right? The Bible is filled with tensions. I didn't say contradictions. The Bible is not filled with contradictions, but it is filled with tensions. What do I mean by that? Well, Scripture will give us a principle And then it would give us another principle, and at first glance, those two seem to be in opposition to one another. And the Bible's filled with principles like that. Let me give you an example. The Bible tells us that a good reputation is of more value than material wealth. It is a really good thing for other people to think well of you. And then, at the same time, the Bible tells us not to be controlled by the opinions of other people. Now, wait a minute. How do you do both of those? How do we have a good reputation and want a good reputation and yet not be controlled by other people's opinions of us? That is a tension that is found in Scripture. And for you to truly live out the Christian life and live in a way that glorifies God, you and I have to do the hard thinking of putting those two principles side by side and working through how we can uphold both of those principles. And that is one of the best ways to grow in maturity and wisdom and in sanctification. It's the ability to discern how to do both of those at the same time. That is part of the work of putting a lifestyle that is fitting with sound doctrine into practice. That's what we're talking about in the book of Titus. Now, one of the, another one of the major tensions in Scripture that I have no doubt you feel, or I hope you feel, In your daily life, one of those other major tensions is that you and I are to be faithful witnesses in our culture. We're to be in the world without assimilating to the culture. We are to be in the world. We're to know unbelievers. We're to be friends with unbelievers. We're to live our lives with unbelievers. And yet, you and I are not to assimilate to the lifestyle of unbelievers. The scriptures call us to that. And that's attention. How do we do that? How do we train our kids to do that? How do we live faithfully in this culture without conforming to this culture? And I think these verses will help us. Not saying they're the end-all be-all answer to that question, but they will help us in how we do that. So look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, verse 2, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, he's going to help us navigate this, this tension that we feel in Scripture by looking at two areas, okay? First, we are to be obedient, submissive to governing authorities, to civil authorities. So let's talk about government here for a second. Everybody's favorite topic, right? Taxes are due this week. (laughs) Hopefully you have already filed. If not, maybe you should leave right now and go get to work on getting your taxes ready. I won't say that I'm happy to pay taxes into the system all the time or even most of the time. But I think the biblical perspective on civil government is, get ready for this, That civil government is a gift of common grace to you and I. Let me show you that from Romans chapter 13. Flip over there if you want. You can just listen as I read it. But listen to how Paul, the same author who wrote Titus, describes governing authorities here. Verse verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every person be subject. It's the same language as Titus 3.1. Be subject to the governing authorities for... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For, and this is a key part of this, this is explaining why God has instituted civil authority. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Even imperfect rulers are that. That's the goal. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You can flip back to Titus. Verse 3, I think, in Romans 13 that I pointed out gives us God's purpose for human authorities. The reality is that you and I live in a shared space with other people lots of other people. And so our lives overlap in significant ways with human beings who live around us and God has instilled imperfect yes, absolutely, but he has instilled imperfect human governments to manage the fall, to manage people's sinful tendencies, to hold back the tide of evil that is that is in men's hearts. That's why we have laws, that's why we have rules. You can't legislate morality. Yes, you can. You can hold back the evil that is in people's hearts. And that's what the civil authorities are supposed to do. You can't bring people to salvation through laws, but you can prevent people from killing one another in the streets to a certain extent. So civil authorities are supposed to hold back the tide of evil, and they're also to promote what is good. There's a dual aspect to the authority that they have that they're instituted by God. And so, according to Titus 3.1, if you're back over there, we're supposed to respond to those governing authorities by submitting obediently to them. That's the way we should respond to them. But look what else he says at the end of verse 1. We're to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, I think when he talks about being ready for every good work, he's talking about the broader scope than just civic involvement. But I think it includes civic involvement. And so what, what I take away from this is, as you and I have the opportunity to help our government live out its God-ordained purpose of promoting what is good and holding back the tide of evil. As we have opportunity to that, and not every person in every culture has that opportunity. The people at this time didn't really have it. But as you have that opportunity, we should be willing to do that and want to do that for the good of other people. So we do good works broadly in society. That's what he's calling us to. But man, we can, if we can help the government to live out its God-ordained purpose, that's a good, good thing for us to do. But beyond being submissive to civil authorities, now he gives us a second area that will help us live out this tension and fulfill our social responsibilities. And this is just in our day-to-day relationships with other people. Look at verse 2. We are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Sound doctrine shapes how we live with those around us. Sound doctrine will help us, should help us, to treat other people as those who are made in the image of God and who are deserving of our kindness and our respect, and our courtesy. And let's be honest, this is becoming increasingly more difficult in our world. It's hard. Most of the media that we consume, whether it's social media, cable news, mainstream media, whatever it may be, most of the media that we consume is coming from a perspective that we already agree with. Your social media feed is curated that way so that you see things that you already agree with. And what that does is it vilifies the other side and the other person, the person who's on the other side. And it makes us think of other people who we don't agree with as enemies, hardly bearing the image of God and not worthy of our courtesy and our kindness and our respect. I think you could take verse two. I think we all could take this. And if you're involved in social media, put this on your computer or on your phone. And before you do anything on social media, read verse two. This should control how we think of other people and how we interact with other people. And because our culture is becoming more and more divided and we're vilifying People that disagree with us more and more, this is an incredible opportunity for us as the church to live out what he describes in verse 2. And what a witness that would be if we did this, if we really didn't speak evil of one another, if we thought the best of people, if we were gentle, if we avoided quarreling, if we were showing perfect courtesy toward other people. Now, unfortunately, When you read this verse or when I talk like this, sometimes Christians will react by saying, yeah, but Jesus drove people out of the temple and kicked over tables and used a whip. Yes, he did. But that doesn't give you permission to be a jerk online (laughs) or in person. Paul sees no contradiction between being straightforward with the truth and this passage right here. I mean, you can see the way he handles the false teachers back in chapter 1. And if you look ahead in, at the end of chapter 3, what we're going to talk about next week, he says we're to warn people who are stirring up division. And that's pretty, pretty honest and pretty straightforward. And so Paul sees no contradiction here between being grace-filled and being straightforward with the truth. He sees those things as going hand in hand. And I think Paul would say here that if you don't live out the lifestyle, the attitude that verse 2 describes, then you have forgotten the gospel. You really aren't making the connection between what God has done by his grace and your daily life and the way you treat others. And I say that because of our second reminder, which is based in verse 3. So our faith has social responsibilities. We're to live out our faith in the way we respond to government, in the way we respond to other people. And we're to do that because our beginning was so bad. Our beginning was so bad. Look at verse three. At the beginning of verse three, you see the word for. For we ourselves were. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, you need to live with grace and courtesy toward unbelievers because of your beginning because of who you and I once were this is the reason for why we have this lifestyle described in verses 1 and 2 let me read the whole verse to you for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. It is good to be reminded of what life was like before Christ. And it's good to be reminded of what life would still be like if it wasn't for the grace of God. It's good to be reminded of these things. And as you get into the details of this verse, of this picture, it is not pretty. This is not a person you want to be, and it's not a person that we necessarily want to hang out with. Think of a person described who is living out these qualities. I mean, let's just start with one, foolish. It's difficult to live with a foolish person. You can access a lot of foolishness online today, can't you? Videos of people doing foolish things. Not long ago, uh, it's probably a couple years ago now, but it always sticks out in my mind. I was watching this video on YouTube of this guy who <laughs> wanted to do a backflip off of a soda machine. I, it, whatever. So, so he climbs up on the soda machine. He has his buddy filming him with his camera, and he gets up on the soda machine. And it's like there's concrete underneath the soda machine, and you just know what's going to happen. So he gets up on it, and he tries to do this backflip. And I can't remember if he didn't rotate enough or he over-rotated. But, I mean, bam, he hit the concrete on his face, and he comes up bleeding. I'm sure teeth were missing. It was awful. Well, they obviously stopped the camera and cut away. There's more in the video. So they come back months later after he's healed up. And he's back at the soda machine, and he's going to prove to everyone that this time he can do it the right way. And so he climbs up on the soda machine, and he gets up there, and he jumps, and he rotates wrong again, and the exact same thing happens. And he smashes his face on the concrete, and he comes up again bleeding. What what is wrong with you? (laughs) I mean, I know why I watch those videos, because it's just shocking that someone could be that foolish. That is the definition of foolishness. And honestly, that is what Paul is talking about here. It's someone who does the same thing over and over again that is absolutely self-destructive, and they keep doing it. That is life without Christ, and that was each one of us before we met Christ, and that would still be each one of us without meeting Jesus Christ. And when you fuse together someone who is that foolish with the rest of these qualities, someone who is enslaved to various passions and pleasures, their God is their belly, they are controlled by their desires. When you have a foolish person who's controlled by his desires, who at the end of the verse is living in malice and envy, who is hated by other people and is hateful to other people, when you describe that person, that is not the way to win friends and influence people. And here's the thing. Nothing about this person described in verse 3 is easy to live with. That's true. It's hard, right? For, for you and I, it's hard to live out the qualities of verse 2 with someone who is described in verse 3. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean we're better than those people at all. The way, the reason Paul is describing this here, the reason he sets it up like this is because you have to remember that the only reason you're any different, the only reason that you're not doing backflips off of soda machines metaphorically speaking, is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is who we were. This is who we would still be without intervention from the outside. And so Paul is saying, you and I have to live with empathy for other people, for unbelievers. We have to see them as the mission field and not as the enemy. We have to see them as enslaved in this lifestyle and caught up in it and not living the good life. And I think one of the key qualities of Christian maturity is to be able to look at another person and to say, man, they're, they're acting foolishly in their unbelief, but I would be that person if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And it's the grace of Christ that Paul now explains to us in verses 4 through 8, and that's our third reminder. So our faith has social responsibilities. We are to live a certain way in the world with unbelievers And we do that graciously and kindly, even when it's difficult, because we know the work of God in our heart. We know how awful life was before Christ. And we know that we have been changed by the gospel that has been brought to us. Look at the start of verse four, but. And you know passages like this in scripture where it says, but. It describes who we were. Ephesians 2 is a great example. This is who you were. And this is one of those magnificent contrasts in the Bible that compels us to look up from our sinful past and to look at what God has done and direct our attention there. We were this, but. But something happened. And I want to read what happened to you. And then we're going to talk through it. Verses 4 to 7. Let me read this. But. of eternal life. That's one sentence right there. And that is a beautiful description of the gospel that has changed us and has been brought to us through the grace of Christ. You would get in trouble if you wrote a sentence like that in freshman English in high school, but Paul gets away with it. And because it's one sentence, I want to try to help break it down and make it clear so that you can understand exactly what has happened as the gospel has come to you so that you can live out the implications of the gospel coming to you. The very center of this sentence is the beginning of verse five. This is the main verb. This is it. He saved us. God is the subject Saving us is the action. That's the center. Everything in verse four leads up to that. And everything in verses five, six, and seven flows from that centerpiece there. It's like the span that holds the bridge together. It's the crux. We've seen that language of salvation before, haven't we? Look back in chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 13, he's called our savior, Jesus Christ. And the central idea in this salvation that has been brought to us, we use that term so often, salvation, I'm saved. But what does it mean? The central idea is that God has rescued us from final destruction. He has rescued us. A few years ago, back in Virginia, uh, during the summer, which... Apparently, we don't have here in Michigan. (laughs) Summertime. So, or maybe there's like three weeks of it in July. So, but in the summer, we were at a friend's pool. We went to this pool pretty regularly. And uh, Stella, uh, she's five now, but she was two at that point. And, uh, you know, it's a friend's pool, so we're very comfortable there. And, we were very careful with our kids at the pool, so don't don't think this is a lack of parenting here as I described this story to you, but all the, the, all the adults were on one side of the pool and we're talking, and Stella normally has a swimmy on for some reason at this moment. She did not have a swimmy on, and so she's kind of walking around the pool. She's staying away from it and all that, but she's two. She's bouncing along, and of course, we're watching her, and I start to get up to walk toward her, but she quickly gets around to almost the exact opposite side of the pool, and it's a pretty good-sized pool, and as two-year-olds are prone to do, she trips, she stumbles, and she tumbles into the deep end of the pool, and so I'm already up walking, but Bethany said she has never seen me move so fast. I sprinted around the pool, jumped from like halfway across the pool, landed right beside her, hoisted her up with one arm, and put her on the side. And it happened so quickly, I didn't even really think about it, but it happened so quickly that she didn't even have time to suck in any water. She was totally fine, put her up there. She cried a little bit, but she was fine. Well, the funny part about the whole thing was for probably the next two or three months, and I think even up to a year after this, Stella would randomly say, Daddy saved me. (laughs) Daddy, daddy Daddy saved me. Daddy saved me. And in this passage, all three members of the Trinity are involved in our rescue. Because that's who God is. That's what he does. He is a God who rescues. He loves to rescue drowning swimmers. And when I saved Stella, I saved her by being a decent swimmer and having a fairly quick first step. But what method does God use to save us? How does he do it? And that's what Paul's going to explain in this whole passage. So he saved us as the centerpiece of this passage, and he's going to answer three questions. What method does he use? How does he do it? And why does he do it? So we're going to see three questions here. I'll put them on the screen so you can remember. But what does he do? How, what, is he, what method does he use? How does he do it? And why does he do it? Let's look at the first question. What method? What method? Now, if you've ever been a teacher, you know that a very effective method of instruction is to explain what something is not, the negative, and then to explain what something is. And that's what Paul does here. So look at verse 4. But when the goodness, or let's look at verse 5, actually. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is what does not lead to our salvation. Rescue does not come to us because we are worthy in any way. God is not in the business of rescuing noteworthy, good, or righteous people because he can't find any. Salvation doesn't come to us by our works in righteousness because none of us have any works in righteousness to offer back to God. We have done the exact opposite of works of righteousness. Romans chapter 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We have been so stained by sin that even our best attempts at works of righteousness are tainted by self-love and disregard for God and therefore are, according to this passage, worthless before him. Keeping with that pool illustration, it's like you have fallen into a pool with an entire suit of armor on, iron armor. I don't know why you're wearing it, but you're wearing it. And you have fallen into the pool with that suit of armor on and you realize that you're sinking very quickly and you try to swim. You try to move your arms. You try to move your legs and the suit has rusted and you can't even move your arms and legs to try to get yourself out of this situation. And so the only thing that happens is you sink further and faster from trying to get yourself out of it. That's what it's like. It is not by our works of righteousness that he saves us. So what is it? What does bring us salvation? Look at the rest of verse five. But according to his own mercy. Now look back up at verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Three words. Goodness, loving kindness, and mercy. Those are qualities of God. And he doesn't act in mercy toward us because We deserve it. He acts in mercy toward us because we don't deserve it. And if you look at those definitions, even verse 4, it sounds like chapter 2 and verse 11. The goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Look back at verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. If If you put mercy, goodness, and loving kindness together, it's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. It's God initiating. It's him taking The initiative to act toward us. It's God moving toward the one who has fallen into the pool and is sinking fast and cannot rescue his or herself. It's God's grace. He sees us in our pitiful, sinful condition, and he moves toward us to save us. So how does he do it? What and how? How does he accomplish this salvation? Look at the rest of verse 5. By The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So grace rescues us by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But what does the Holy Spirit do? What does his work amount to that saves us? There are several words here that describe it. Look there. By the washing. So washing, regeneration, and renewal. All of those words... All the works of the Holy Spirit here are describing the new birth. That moment in time when you were dead in your sins, you did not have spiritual life. And in that moment of time, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you take a breath and you have spiritual life. Now you can see the beauty of the glory of God. God, by his grace, by his movement and his initiative, gives spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. And at the new birth, you are washed, you are cleansed from your sins. They are gone. They are no more. You are renewed. You are given spiritual life. It is a decisive reality that happens by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. One theologian described it like this, and I thought this was so good, I wanted to show it to you. God effects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources, a change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls the things that be not as though they were, who spake and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What is that? That's a moment that light was created in Genesis 1. The same God who speaks and light happens and the world comes into existence has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who speaks worlds into existence by his Holy Spirit speaks into your dead heart and gives you spiritual life. It's the same reality that happens there. It's the creation of something where there was nothing. No ability, no spiritual life, and all of a sudden, life has been given. And regeneration comes to you, of course, by the work of Jesus Christ. Look at... Verse 7 or verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through, it all comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, it's through the work of Christ that the Holy Spirit regenerates us. So the what here, go back to those. Well, I don't have them up there anymore. That's fine. The what, his God's grace. The how is through life-giving regeneration. And the why, this is the purpose, is found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that, and then he goes back sort of and summarizes so that he's sure you get it. This is a summary of what everything else that we've described. So that being justified by his grace, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, that being justified by his grace, that's a summary of everything that we've just read. And it's interesting what he's doing there. That word justified, that's the same root word as the word righteousness in verse 5. So, in verse 5, it's not by our works of righteousness, it's not by good things that we do, by our own ability, but it is by God declaring us righteous. That's how this happens. We did not bring our own righteousness to the table, but God, by his grace, declares those who are unrighteous to be righteous. His righteous life is counted or imputed to us. And all of that happens. You are declared righteous so that, look back at verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's for the purpose of us being joined to the Son, Jesus Christ, and then we receive all the benefits of being adopted into His family. The goal is so that we will have an inheritance, and that inheritance, inheritance is eternal life. You've done nothing to earn it, and this inheritance will not end up in probate court. It is sure, it is firm. It is yours through Jesus Christ because you've been adopted into his family. And so we can place our full hope and confidence in the benefits that are coming to us in the future and that are already ours now. We have eternal life through adoption because of Jesus Christ. So that is the gospel. Verses four to seven have given us the gospel. This is the full range of God's work by his grace to save, to rescue those who don't deserve it. But let's let's get the car back in the garage here. It almost feels like we've, we've gone off on a tangent here talking about the gospel. But this connects to our overall point. The point is a reminder so that we can live faithfully in our culture. And the gospel is an important piece of that. The gospel is the message that saves us and changes us. This is the message that brings about initial change, through regeneration, and that continues to shape you and I as we live life. So we have to keep going back to this message and relearning it and re it and reacquainting ourselves with it. This is the message that leads to a lifestyle of influence with those around you. Look at verse 8. The saying... What he's just said, the gospel, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Titus has to become like an alarm clock that goes off at the same time that insists that you get up and get out of bed and deal with it. He is to insist on these things. He is to continually go back to the gospel so that the people will see the connection between what they believe and the way they're supposed to live. Look how he explains it here. So that those who have believed in God, they know their doctrine, they know the gospel, they believe the right things so that those who have believed in God will be careful may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, notice what Paul does not say here. He doesn't say, don't worry about good theology and focus on pursuing good works. That's not what he says. He insists that good theology, good doctrine, right doctrine, deep doctrine is necessary for good works. There's a Purposeful connection. Sometimes we tend to think that deep, profound theological arguments and understanding that those things, that that theological thinking is the enemy of good works. It's like you can either have the theological or the practical. Paul would say, no way. You're putting asunder things that go together. You're dividing what is united. Good, sound, exciting doctrine The gospel is what leads us to do good works. They go together. They go hand in hand. And that's why Paul stresses this here. Titus, you have to keep preaching the gospel. You have to make sure people understand it. And then you have to insist that their understanding of it flows out into good works. When we don't pursue sound theology in our lives and we try to live a righteous life, Without that understanding, it's like trying to prepare a gourmet dinner without knowing the difference between salt and sugar. You have to know the difference. So you get the ingredients right. But it's not enough to just know the difference between the two of them. You have to use them as they're supposed to be used in the proper way. And so that's why he says we have to be intentional about applying these things. And it's not enough to just expect that learning the truths of the gospel will result in a change in the way you live. We, as the church, in relationship with one another, have to be carefully, intentionally, deliberately working these things out. That's why we have small groups, so that we can talk about it. How does this impact our neighbors, the way I live before the civil authorities? How does this shape the way I interact with those in my kids' school or at work? How does this impact that? And we talk those things out and we work those things out so that we're obeying the command that Paul gives here in verse eight. And so my hope today is twofold here this morning. I want this to be a reminder of the good news of the gospel. Listen, this is all by God's grace and it's incredible news for us. And we need to go back and we need to think about these things. What is regeneration? What does it mean that God saved us? What is the extent of our sinfulness? Even in verse three, he explains that we need to think about those things. We need to ponder them. We need to talk about them in our lives. And then my second hope is that doing that will flow out into lives that reflect this gospel and that are making an impact in the culture around us. That we will do good works, not to earn favor with God, but out of the overflow of his grace. And that we'll do those good works in the church for one another, and that we'll do them for those outside of the church as we serve the church and the world together. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are a rescuing God. You have seen us in our pitiful, sinful condition, and you initiated a plan to save us, to rescue us. We're so thankful for that. My words don't do justice to the reality of the gospel and of our salvation. But I pray that your Holy Spirit, even as your spirit gives us life and regenerates us by your grace, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us now. He is powerful and persuasive. And so I pray that he would prick our hearts that he would direct our attention toward you and that he would apply these truths to us even now. We thank you for this word from Titus and we thank you for the clarity of your scriptures. Thank you that we're not left to wander without them. Use it in our hearts even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.